welcome everybody to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Dolapena, and on today's episode, we have the head of the ICC Americas, the regional development manager, Farah Gorsi. Farah has an illustrious resume prior to coming to the ICC Americas to become the head administrator in the region. She was the first registered female agent with the ECB and had a number of high-profile clients, including Muhammad Amir, on the back of the match-fixing scandal. She'll go into her other work outside of cricket, which includes some very, very interesting anecdotes that she will share. I don't want to spoil those, but Farah's led an interesting life, to say the least. So we'll get to that interview with Farah Gorsi, the ICC America's Regional Development Manager, where she is based at the headquarters of the regional office now located in Colorado Springs, Colorado. But I want to remind everybody that the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also brought to you by Moose Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Moose Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. Just one disclaimer for people listening in. This interview with Farah Gorsi was recorded before the start of the ICC America's Women's T20 Qualifier in Mexico. So if you hear some references to meeting people in Mexico during the event, that is the reason why. But otherwise, the interview is still very relevant, whether before or after the event in Mexico, especially leading into the Men's America's T20 World Cup Qualifier and beyond. There's an awful lot of content with Farah cricket and non-cricket that that fans can chew on so without further ado here is the interview with icc america's regional development manager farah gorsi today on the stars and stripes cricket podcast presented by dream cricket i'm very very privileged and honored to be welcomed by the icc america's regional development manager farah gorsi farah welcome to the show thank you thank you for the invite well thank you for accepting Absolutely. What else would I be doing on a Friday afternoon? <laughs> well, that, that's a good question. In your part of the world, there, there's an awful lot of adventuresome things to do outdoors, and there's, there's an awful lot of things, ways you can get up to no good out in, in Colorado as well. So, yes, what would you be doing on a Friday afternoon, Farah, if you didn't have cricket activities to do? So, on a typical day off, and especially it's such a beautiful fall day as I look outside my window, my office window, and um, Peter, it would be a hike for sure. There's just so much nature, beauty of the mountains. I would be on a hike. And then later on, I would go for, I'm an avid now, wasn't before when I was a Manchester girl, a bike rider, mountain bike rider. So I would go for a bike ride because it is just cool enough. So perfect weather for hiking and biking is what I would do. I mean, I usually do film most of my days off um, physical activities opposed to sitting um, in front of my computer. Have you ever been to Pikes Peak? Do you know, I've not been to the Pikes Peak and it's a 14er in this region. My friends have been on that hike. I've done smaller hikes. Not to say I can't do it. I just haven't found that right time to do it. What you're really saying is I got better things to do. Pikes Peak is beneath me. I've got, that's just. No, <laughs> no, it's, it's a landmark in itself. It's iconic to do the 14er. I think it would be tough if I'm being completely transparent. I think it'd be tough. So I would have to do that with a group of people who are avid hikers as well. But I have done, I don't know if you've heard of the incline in Colorado Springs. 
And well, I, I've not, not only have I not heard of the incline, I've not even heard of the 14 or using this fancy hiking lingo as, as like an expert or something. Well, I've done my research. It is a mountain 14,000 feet. And there are, now I did my research as I was on my last trip. There's, let me think, there's 54 mountains in the US known as the 14ers and the Pikes Peak in Colorado is known as one. I learn something new every day. I, I had a feeling 14 area implied something to do with 14,000 feet or above 14,000 feet. Yeah, my other guess was it takes 14 hours to hike. Yeah, we're not doing the Everest here, Pete. We're just doing the 14 here. We're doing the 14, 14,000 feet in a couple of hours, I'd say, two hours. Well, you're the head of the region, essentially. You're in charge of all the associate countries in the Americas. So North and South America and the Caribbean this month is the ICC America's Women's T20 World Cup qualifier. First time there's been an ICC event hosted in Mexico. There was a little bit of wrangling to get it there due to COVID, <laughs> but I think people are excited, whether it's Mexico City or anywhere else, just to have cricket happening. What are your thoughts on the staging, the event, having it be in Mexico City as a first-time host, and just the opportunity to have more cricket and more women's cricket specifically in the new post-COVID era? I would be, I don't think it's post just yet, Peter. Is I was there... trying to be optimistic. I was trying sorry, to okay. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't want to ruin that. Um, but yeah, no. Hey, hey, fair, fair. As far as we're concerned, COVID doesn't exist in Mexico City for this event. There will be no COVID in Mexico City. So it's post-COVID for this tournament. But, do you know, okay, you're right. I'm going to let you have that one. You're absolutely 100% spot on. Um, first of all, absolutely excited that we are having an ICC women's tournament and don't forget our debutants Brazil and Argentina so it's the clash of the North America versus South America I'm absolutely looking forward to going to Mexico next week to witness history being made number one as I said in a recent email um, history is being made and the one benefit of COVID is that Mexico City the way it's growing cricket at the moment probably not exponentially as we'd like for it to be, but to have the opportunity to host a regional, an ICC regional qualifier is something that not every member, I would say, especially in the Americas region with the growth of women being quite low, has the opportunity to host. With that said, now that we are, we, we have been able to overcome, surpass, however you'd like to, Call it the challenges of COVID, the hosts have done an exceptional job for people who have never hosted an ICC event. Um, and also we, go, we are as well, Peter, as well as focusing on our four teams, US, Canada, Argentina, Brazil, we're also going to be putting some limelight on the Mexican women's team as well um, and doing a legacy piece around the training and education and the local education programs that we have for them. So it'll do great for the growth of women and girls game in the Americas, because we are one of the regions that does need to grow immensely. And that's comparing to my fellow colleagues in the global world in the other regions. Now, you touched on it. You mentioned it briefly. You alluded to it about life is different in Colorado compared to way back in Manchester. You're from Manchester. You're a Manchester girl. Take us into how you got into cricket how your love for the sport first started was it just growing up in a family thing in and around Manchester being in the English sporting culture was there some other way that you were drawn to cricket 
the million dollar question, Peter, that everyone knows, um, or I like to tell everyone is that my father is, is my hero. He really is. He is due to my father that I'm in cricket, due to the love of cricket in a Pakistani family um, in Manchester and watching cricket. My first memories of sport was Pakistan winning the 1992 World Cup and Imran Khan lifting that trophy. And if you had to ask me what happened in 92, well, no, that's the only thing I could tell you. But my only most deepest memory of where the whole family were in, it's as if we'd won the lottery. It, everyone was jumping, screaming, and it was just jumping in with them and watching Javid, me and dad, watching Inzamar Mohak when he was batting. That for me is one of my most favorable memories of sport, but also personally, because um, it was one of my father's. And I shared that moment with my brothers and sisters and with my father. So cricket comes stems from passion, from family passion. And I see cricket is bringing us together as a community and as a family. So for me, it's, it has different meanings um, in that sense. It's more family-based, more love um, and foundation of my father's upbringing in Pakistan and then moving to England. I thought about cricket further down the line of um, my career. If I'm honest, I do it to um, make my parents proud, <laughs> especially, I know, you know, forget anything else. It's just so that my father is just so proud that I told the saying that, and that you know, sometimes I think when he's talking to my relatives, he, he makes out that I'm like the CEO of ICC. I'm like, dad, this is, no, like cut that out. This is embarrassing. Just work in a region that's all but my father's heavily proud um, and in giving my parents joy is probably the most what makes me happy um, and then doing this as a career so firstly I was um, UK's first ECB registered female cricket agent and um, as much as my father loves cricket he was very apprehensive of, of me going into um, a male-driven sport and especially when I said my first client is going to be Mohammed Ahmed at that time he was banned and the look on my father's face was like, here we go. And I thought, oh, that talk's coming. But since, I mean, I convinced him, I talked him through and I said, this is what my plan is. This is my plan with my company was Think Sports because eventually I wanted to branch out into all sports, but my love for cricket was going to supersede. And that was going to be my first strategic objective of the business. Father was very skeptical. <laughs> but yeah, that's how I started, Peter, as an as a, as a agent, as a cricket agent. You've led a very interesting life, that's for sure. When you mentioned Muhammad Amir being your first client, and at the time he was radioactive, to say the least. <laughs> yes, if, nothing if, like a challenge. Yes, that's one way of putting it. Uh, <laughs> one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, now you mentioned your sports agency, and I, wa I want to go into that in a little bit more detail, because I, I find that is a fascinating story and how you were a bit of a trailblazer in that regard. But before that, I did a bit of research. Google is a, a fantastic resource, Farah. <laughs> Here we go. Yes, it was an article. I think it was in the Bucks Times or the Bucks Herald. Or it was some Buckinghamshire periodical that was talking about how you were coming to talk to a group of students to be a mentor to inform them about what you were doing at the time, which was working as a sports agent at the time. But it said in the article, before becoming a sports agent, you worked as a 
project manager, which means a million different things, but also you were a model. I don't know if this was on a TV shoot or if it was a magazine shoot or what, but there's a picture of you with Jamie Oliver in a kitchen with Jamie Oliver. And you're looking very, very productive behind a, a stove cooking God knows what <laughs> in, in one of Jamie Oliver's kitchens. So I'm curious, how did you go from modeling into sports representation, sports management agency? No, Peter, you have done your research. Don't Google. Yes. So I, I started my modeling was, again, linked to the wonderful Mr. Father Gorsi. I had my daughter around the time of work. I was weighing, actually, there was a paper, an article I did do because I was a size 20. So I was a size 20. And from that stage and having a discussion with my father who thought I was overweight and pointed it out quite correctly um, because he'd never seen me put on weight. So after the baby, my people give people time to lose weight, recover. My father was very much, hey, five, little worry, just you're, you're well over your standard weight so that's where it first started and I said to my father um, okay I'll I guarantee you father I will lose this weight I'll get to the gym and it just led from there I worked on my fitness lost a load of weight and then did an article where I showed my size 20 trousers to my size 6 trousers and from there I was contacted to do some modeling from that article so I then signed up with boss models in Manchester from part of which were then to do modeling plus any extra work. So I was also um, on Coronation Street as the indent. And I think I currently am pegging up the washing in a stripy top as the cat walks on the wall. I did that for their 50th celebrations. From there, I was then um, casted for Jamie Oliver's Christmas special. We would do the truck. We would take the truck around different cities in England and we were his assistants, chef assistants. And there was four of us who were selected on that. And that was at least five commercials I've done with Jamie Oliver. So that's where it started from. Losing weight, fitness, Coronation Street, Jamie Oliver. And then I did Liverpool Catwalk. I did um, a catwalk in London and many fashion shows, Asian fashion shows, bridal fashion shows. If I think about it now, it's, it was probably trying to diverse into something that I felt I could do but then realized that it was my very last photo shoot a 16 year old girl was arguing about a dress and I thought I'm done I don't want to argue over a dress I'm like I'm more than just putting on a dress and getting out there and that was ironically enough my last modeling job it was just a holy get it was very it's very much the industry is described, sometimes catty, sometimes nice, etc. And it got to a point where I was accused of taking someone's dress. I would have admitted, but I think I was slightly bigger than her still at that time. So, yes, that was um, the modelling. And then came the, hey, I need to go back to university. I need to study. I want to do something else. And that's where I put, started to do my research and threw myself into sports marketing. There's an awful lot to unpack there. The bit about the Coronation Street, my wife, she's going to want your autograph now after hearing that you're famous. <laughs> no, even when I send, even to this day, my brother and sisters are shocked. So, yeah. You say, you say they're shocked. Are they more impressed or do they brag more about you having been in Coronation Street or all your roles in cricket? So, cricket's here. 
modeling, my brothers would joke, you should be a glove model. And anything to do with TV and modeling was down there. And cricket is just, I feel like they should be throwing petals every time I walk into a living room or something, welcoming me, not that that happens. Um, but yes, cricket is absolutely most prestigious. It's religion, close to Islam in our house. Your journey from, from modeling, it sounds like you kind of stumbled into it almost by accident, where it was, it was not something that it sounded like that was an ambition of yours. Um, and it was something more, more to do with your dad, almost issuing you a, a personal challenge. And it just, all sorts of things just happened by fate. Even though it wasn't something that you set out to do, did you genuinely enjoy it? Or was it a case of by the time you got to the end of it, like you said, you were looking to get out of it? Very much so. I think it's one of those experiences in life that if the opportunity arises, well, my mantra is always try and see what, what becomes of it. So it was never a dream to become a model. Never was a path carved out that I'd go down this route. And definitely, I think, inspired by my father, which I think he wasn't too impressed with later on. <laughs> but, was, it um, something, was it something he regretted? Like, oh, my God, what did I say? I should have kept my mouth shut. Yeah, he's like, oh, my gosh. He's like, Actually, he did say that at one point. He's like, okay, now you've gone too far. Now I can see your bones. You don't, you don't need to lose that much weight. So he, I think there may be some element of regret, although my father would never admit that. But, uh, yes. I think it, it was just something I stumbled upon. I enjoyed, I enjoyed, and, and probably what I took away from it the most because was meeting some fabulous personalities, meeting some fabulous people and understanding their journey of really taking modeling seriously where I was just tiptoeing in and out as I felt and just meeting some good people and understanding that it was one of the journeys in life where you'd learn. And I think it also made me realize that I was just more than just this hair makeup it was you know I didn't have any mental stimulation as I call it and that made me think well you know this is all nice it's entertainment but where does your heart lie and then became the journey of trying to find that path again so good experience I'll never regret it I enjoyed it but when time's up I want to uh, yeah move on you moved on yeah. you said you, you went you <laughs> went to university you went back to university yeah. uh, you went to I've looked up University of Salford was one of your yes. stops. So that's where you went. Yes. That's where you trained in sports management or what, what, what were you working on to go pursue yeah. sports. the sports agency initiative? Yeah. Sports marketing um, and with an element of business management in there is what I studied over at Salford. But as you start talking about it, I can picture for the English listeners, motorway, not highway. And I do, I generally just miss it just miss Manchester, just miss even that route of going down. I would come through Salford, through Bolton, Farnworth, and then drive through. So yes, um, sports, uh, sports marketing, Peter, sorry to answer your question. I'm veering off with my uh, reminiscent of Manchester now. Good old Manchester. I'm glad you live there. That's one thing we do have in common. We do, yes, indeed. We love cricket, and we're in Manchester, and we love Manchester. And then there are some other things, but Manchester could be in store in the favorite 11 later on I've got so <laughs> going to University of Salford yes you do your sports marketing and was it was it specifically with the, the intent to become an agent or did you have some other general plan in mind not at all um, Peter not at all it was more for what can I do marketing was always a passion commercial sponsorships as a business as a whole but never one for agency so then what drew you to want to become an agent then I did read about a lady who was a football agent and I have to give her credit because I started reading 
on sports marketing. I wanted to go in sports. I should say that actually. I wanted to go into sports, but I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And I read upon a lady who was a football agent and it inspired me. And I thought, actually, that's really good because she covers marketing, consultancy on sponsorship, commercialization, um, and helps with some of the, she'd been partnered with some of the local football clubs. And I thought, maybe, just maybe there's an opportunity. So I did my research. I got a hold of ETB. Um, actually, I nagged the lady. I hope she's still there. She was a wonderful lady who helped me, you know, taught me through the process. And the more I read through all the papers or the examination, what was required is as I read more, as I continued with my research, is where my heart was giving me that yes, gut instinct, feeling a good vibe from um, these papers and thinking, yep, I can do my exam. I'd like to understand an industry. And again, I don't really have anyone to talk to about it. So you're going into the unknown, which can be sometimes fearing, but I always see it as an opportunity and I find it exciting because it's time to learn. So that's where I, again, started going very slowly into research. It was never in my head, this is what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to become, who I'm going to target. It all just evolved through the journey of research. So then at what stage then, I guess, through that whole process, did your heart become set on pursuing it? I think once I'd sat the exam, I'd sort my insurance. I was looking at my logo. It just started, in, you know, the whole thought of having my own company, working with cricketers, who I thought were, you know, heroes to me. Like they were my celebs. And the more it became realistic as I, you know, sat my exam, got my insurance. And I thought, yeah, okay. And that's where I had the, I, I had the discussion with my father. More importantly, have the blessing of um, Father Gorsi in this. And then I also started researching on cricket. I mean, I did always follow it very subconsciously as well, listening, watching my dad, um, reading the paper. And I think the more, I, again, I can honestly say that the more I've done research, the more I was involved and even going to Lords. I think even the walking into a cricket atmosphere, cricket environment, um, just excited me more than anything. So it was like, yep, this is it. Heart's content. I'm on this. This is what my uh, mission is. And I joined mission, also Lancashire Cricket Board as well. And mission accomplished. You got mission there. Mission accomplished, yes. <laughs> and it, in, a, in a very unique way, all these things you're talking about, matter of fact, like it's a standard thing, no big deal. But you were now, I want to get this right. You were the first ECB female registered agent or the first ECB female Asian registered cricket agent? First female registered agent with ECB. First female full stop. Yes. And then I then I looked, there was no Asians, not that that should matter, but then I threw in the Asian as well, because then I had Asian organizations contacting me. So then there was that added on, like I did the, I don't know if you've seen Nihal's interview on BBC radio. I've seen the link when I tried to click on it, it was just a still picture there. Was, the link disappeared. I, I couldn't listen to it anymore. Which I'm is not a important shame. anymore now. Because again, you know, again, I could, I could compare, you know, what's a bigger deal going on Coronation Street or being interviewed by Nahal? Nahal is a pretty big deal. I, I think Nahal, I was, I was very nervous. And he asked me the question that I'm sure any, everyone would have liked to ask me, have you watched Jerry Maguire? And the sheer look of horror, I was like, who the heck is he talking about? 
but then I did my research, of course. And uh, yep, then I was quote, I messaged him and said, show me the money. I think he was impressed after that. Needless to say, he never interviewed me again. <laughs> Becoming an agent, getting into that, that side of, of cricket. Again, there are not an awful lot of jobs in general in cricket, but especially, yeah. obviously, there were no women serving yeah. as agents. And so you're, you're already trying to become a trailblazer, trying to become a pioneer. But then as if you weren't challenging yourself enough, you, who do you pursue? You say you pursued Muhammad Amir to be your first client. Take me through the process. I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful, but was it a case of you were struggling to get clients and this was the only guy who was available who you were able to approach because, again, he was radioactive and nobody wanted to have anything to do with him after the match fixing saga? Or <laughs> is there some other story behind the story? No, no, it, there wasn't. In all honesty, then I started, um, it was a breakthrough of getting to know cricketers and then trying to, like I spoke to Moen Ali, Wahab Riyaz, Shah Masood. My memory is actually really bad, but I did start talking to international players, but Mohamed Amir to me was, and I think at the time of, of looking and I announced I was the first female agent and there was a, a lot around media at that time, which was just a genuine interest. I was contacted by one of his friends or, or, or someone from Pakistan to say, would you look to, as you're the first female agent, you know, Mohammed Amir's background. At that time, I didn't know the intricacies of the match fixing in all seriousness. Would you help him come back because he's looking to come back to international career, you're the first female cricket agent. So it was an introduction um, to start to get to know Amir. And then I said, you know, I, I, again, as I mentioned, I spoke to my father and it was, you know, quite an, one of those uncomfortable discussions of what's, you know, exactly what you said is he's coming back from match fixing fire. I understand the whole point of what this means to someone who's coming new into the industry. It could be a poison chalice, you know, it's someone who's a star, but then what happens when you're faced with everything that's going to be drawn into the media as and when he comes back to the international stage. Again, I always believe that I didn't want to come in as, the, as also having this accolade of first female cricket agent, then maybe I need to do something different. Maybe it means putting myself where not many agents would as a newcomer. Let me see what this, you know, what Mohammed Amir is about. So I had, a, I think we, we spoke for a couple of months at first at length. And he has become, and his wife have become genuine good friends of mine, just through the sheer of understanding the challenges he fa faced when he returned to international cricket, but also understanding his background, what had happened in Pakistan, and, and being from parents from Pakistan and understanding that culture, you can somewhat sympathize and understand to what's gone on in that culture and the team environment. So it was, again, I'm very much driven on, on challenges. And I took it upon a challenge to represent Muhammad Ahmed. And at the time, Peter, there were so many other agents who were wanted to represent him at the same time. Farah will represent him. And I, oh, I faced all sorts of challenges from other agents for representing Muhammad Ahmed because they wanted to. But I just thought it was a great opportunity for who I, I believe is an exceptional human being. And I think he's a good father, good husband, and an absolute talented cricketer 
Today's episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now one of the premier venues for the minor league cricket T20 franchise tournament. Located at 5515 McKeever Road in Pearland, five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288 and a half hour south of downtown Houston, Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms plus shower facilities after day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. The whole sports agency industry, whether it's cricket or in the American marketplace with NFL, NBA, baseball, NHL, in some ways, breaking in can be very, very difficult because name recognition, brand recognition, it's almost... um, for lack of a better word, it's it's an incestuous marketplace where there's only a couple of people who really, really have the the market cornered. And if you're not working for them, it's an extreme uphill battle to really carve out a place in the marketplace. So so the fact that you were able to get Amir and that he did choose you to represent him while he was on the comeback trail, what impact did that have in terms of helping you build your portfolio and attract other clients? Automatically. I like to use the term overnight, other Pakistani cricketers started reaching out for representation. People then got to know that this young lady was serious about coming to cricket. That it, for me, I believe it did open up many doors, many doors of representing Muhammad Amr, even to a point we had BBC contacting for an interview, BBC working with me to be able to go to Pakistan to interview him. So that at that time, were just having the accolade of being the first female registered agent also then came a huge responsibility and somewhat accountability to what now my client does is hugely going to be also be a reflection on how I'm managing. So from opening doors and having the exciting and all the good feeling factor became a little bit of seriousness, if not more, that there was this accountability and as I believe as a female coming into cricket, not having many females or having zero female agents, it was always going to be a challenge. And if anything, this not only opened up opportunities, but just as much created as many challenges, if not more um, in that case, do you trust her? She's represented someone from Pakistan. He's done this, you know, even some county boards were reluctant to speak to me about his coming back into international and then county cricket. So it was, it was challenging but I enjoyed it. Opportunities, definitely, but an interesting time for me to learn about cricket, learn, learn about managing people. And that's the first time I actually had to manage someone one-on-one and understand that there was some vulnerability around his side of coming back and that would be up to me to build and also just put him in the light of where everyone, not everyone would accept him, but the majority would accept him for his talent. And perhaps die down the noise around the match fixing what measure of success do you feel you were able to achieve and accomplish in that regard in terms of reshaping his reputation i believe working with amir on -on one-on-one in terms of him having confidence in himself and being able to show a wealth of confidence because i believed in his talent i believed in him for when he told me what had happened through his story and also then to bring him over to the Essex. Essex was a huge accomplishment for us both. Ronnie Ronnie, who actually is a mentor of mine, a huge respect for Ronnie, was someone who I worked closely with to bring Armour into the Essex setting. 
and there was there was challenges around convincing certain people around the board of Ame's talent and who he was as a person, but also then the level of education, of educating him. This is what the real world is about. This is where, you know, even your English, even your English lessons, even how you portray yourself. For me, I think the huge success there, Peter, was the management of bringing someone from somewhat of a tarnished past to the present, but then preparing him for the future. For myself, I think I took away huge success in the changing of army through his environment and through the interaction and people that I'd, I'd have him interact with. There's an awful lot to go into being a sports agent, not just representing the player in terms of contract negotiations or media interactions, but trying to secure sponsorships and uh, endorsement deals. And also perhaps in some ways managing an entourage in terms of if, if there's hangers on or if there's bad influences, good influences, especially in the case of Amir and, and trying to come back, what people do you want him to surround himself with or, or how does he go through that path? And there's other parts of, of being an agent as well. For you, what was the most enjoyable part of the day-to-day duties of being an agent, whether it's for me or any other player? And what part did you enjoy the least that you were most eager to walk away from? What I enjoyed the most was understanding and getting to know my clients. In this case, who they were away from the game, who they were as a father, brother, um, and then also a client. But seeing them in different roles, I think that was understanding, you know, what makes them tick? What do they listen to? What can I control? And that was always a challenge because some days you'd have good days where you'd bring them, you know, hey, New Balance is giving you shoes. And it's like, well, I don't like those. And then I'm sure you, okay, so we've got your three pairs here of exactly the same. So those were the interesting parts of understanding what my client likes, who he is, who is this person, and how do I create that bond as, as a manager, but also someone they trust, they can pick up the phone to at any time. For me, the relationship management was my favorite because we are different humans and I just like to understand who I work with and who I choose to be friends with. Now there's certain clients I've worked friends with and a manager, but certainly it was just managers. I'm just your manager and this is what we're going to do. The part I enjoyed walking away from was when sometimes if I was approaching a club and other agents were, the challenging discussions with other agents that would like to you know, you were, you were a small fish in a very large pond and, and they would make you feel if you were in a meeting or they would make it known that you were just that small fish. And I think getting away from the negativity of what somewhat agents create and maybe just in business in general probably was my most favourite to not deal with the negativity, you know, not given an opportunity, whereas I would never do that. I've had ladies now call message email me and I've always given my best advice so getting away from other agents probably was my favorite but the the clients themselves who in all that I managed I I enjoyed I enjoyed my relationship even if I see them now and I'm at a game there's a lot of respect for each other and a lot of friendship there as well so yeah you kind of touched on one thing there that is, I think, something that is stereotyped a little bit in terms of sports agents. Maybe some of that has to do with Jerry Maguire and what was portrayed in that movie. <laughs> but 
in some ways, sports agents, the sliminess or the very underhandedness, the backstabbing element of the business, and you touched on that as one of the things that you, you were most eager to get away from. Is it as is portrayed in, sometimes in kind of fictionalized versions where even, you know, it's something like Jerry Maguire, where you've got other agents trying to poach your clients, or they're just trying to plant dirty rumors or, or very negative, unsavory things about you to try and scare potential new clients away or scare current clients away. How much of that actually did you experience? And, and did that actually factor into you wanting to leave the business? I'll answer in reverse. No, nobody ever scared me or, I, or any other agent didn't put me off to a point where I would leave at all. A lot of the decisions I made was purely based on my situation and what I would like to follow and do. Passionate for what I was and I'll go into actually that and what made, what sports agent world made me understand about myself as well. But in terms of agents pushing me out and getting away from them, no, I was always ready for a challenge. I knew actually what I was getting myself into. Watching Jerry Maguire actually was somewhat, I mean, it's, as I say, every films or stories are originated from somewhere. So there is some truth to it, but they elevate it in films a lot in terms of what actually happens to what happens realistically. And realistically, there were elements of agents poaching your players and having, you know, being disrespectful because I was a woman in sport. I was a woman who, against using my, my starting point as a weakness, is coming in, she's a woman, and it's the first year she's become an agent. So it was more, not to that level, because I, I also believe I, I, I wasn't the cricket agent that had signed everyone or I had the best clients or I had a huge clientele. So I was never near to that extent for someone to come and harass or cause so much so many problems but I was enough with with some certain handful of quality clients that I had other agents poach my clients and also I never gave anyone an opportunity for rumors I think I one thing I went into and I remember saying this to my father was I'm not in this for the short-term father so it's not a day two month year I'm in for the long term so for me my respect as a female cricket agent, supersedes my ambition of everything I want to achieve financially and purposefully in my own personal development. So rumours, I don't think there was ever, that I know of, <laughs> that I know of um, were, were existent. But yeah, you, you'd have agents always trying to poach, always trying to, to say, hey, listen, we've got this for your player. Hey, listen, hey, Amir, Wahab, hey, we've got this. And Sometimes you'd be challenged because you'd think, well, how has my player interacted? If, if you would listen to a discussion, you'd say, well, how long did this discussion go on for? And why did you entertain discussion knowing you have an agent? So always somewhat tricky in some situations. But yeah, agents and, and the more agents have clients, the more financially confident they are. Newcomers or new agents are not important to even be considered to not poach their players. So there's a lack of respect for newcoming agents as well for that purpose. Did you find it more challenging and more difficult to secure new clients or to keep current clients from being poached away by other agents? I'll be honest, I didn't have any fear of losing clients, but the ones that I work with knew the value of my work and would recommend me to their other colleagues as well. So I never 
there is the odd fear sometimes where you think, okay, this client of mine, and out of all my clients, actually, Armour was the one that I was worried would leave me because new opportunities as he gets back into international cricket. And I'm new to the game as well. But he was loyal right to the end, very loyal to the end and said, nope, I signed with you. I'm going to work with you and whatever you bring, contracts, deals, sponsorships with you. So that was, that was, um, yeah, that was a nice little success. Even to the end, he, he didn't want me to finish working as an agent. A couple of my clients were touched and were a little bewildered I would leave the agent world. But always, and again, I, I say, I always did say, you can contact me anytime, friends, you know, forever in cricket world. So, but yeah, never feared that to an extent. I believed in the work that I did for them. And it'd be their loss sometimes, I'd tell myself, if they lost me working for them. <laughs> you kind of segued into their, your transition from leaving the sports agency world into going to the ICC becoming the head of the ICC America's region as the regional development manager. You took over from Ben Kavanaugh, who was the previous person in the role who went back to Australia and got into, I believe, basketball. I want to say he was the general manager for the Adelaide Sixers or the Adelaide 76ers, whatever they're called in the National Basketball League <laughs> in Australia. What made you want to pursue that opportunity when it came up? As I alluded to previously, my last question, uh, my last answer, sorry, when you asked me was, what sports agency and being a sports agent made me realize was that I was never I was never concerned about the bottom figure the bottom line figure for me it was my love for cricket to grow to help people grow in their role to help grow cricket that superseded my ambition of moving to ICC and when I saw the role that was again presented by my dear friend Ronnie Ronnie is my mentor I, he gave me the confidence that hey listen this is what I believe you can do with your eyes closed. And there were his words. You can do this role with your eyes closed. Why wouldn't you consider an opportunity at ICC? And then I took, I took some further advice from, again, someone who I respect dearly is Colin Graves. He was the chairman at ECB at the time. And I just sit with him in for a few minutes and take some advice around female agent. He actually gave me some advice when I became female agent. And then I also shared this job description with my long-term friend as well, and a mentor, Wazim Khan, who's been huge to my personal development and professional development in the agency world, and then also through the growth of ICC as a regional manager. And every person who I respected in their role in cricket were very encouraging to take this role. And somewhat I felt, okay, I feel that I think I can do this role. This is a new challenge. And again, went open, went into it, very open-minded. What can I lose? I still have my agency. So that's how I moved from my agent role to my current role as ICC regional manager. Ronnie Ronnie, Colin Graves, Wazim Khan, you're dropping an awful lot of names. Is there anybody else you want to name drop on us in terms of somebody no. who, who influenced you and encouraged you to go pursue this sorry, job? Not name drop, but because there's been a lot of people, you know, sorry, I didn't sound, didn't sound, didn't think it sounded so pretentious, but there's been so many people on my journey that have helped, Father Gorsi being one. But these people have been exceptional in their own roles because they didn't have to. They, they took the time to give advice they didn't have to they got the time they took the time to understand there's a newcomer 
and somewhat take you under their wing, sort of speak. So I think that's why I do mention them because they were crucial to my personal and professional development. And also maybe, maybe if I had not had good influences around me, I would have been still an agent. So it makes me think some days. When you were an agent, again, a lot of the focus of, of our conversation has been around Mohammed Amir. You said a lot of the other Pakistan players were calling you and wanted representation as well. And so essentially all of your players that you represented were part of the test were part of the full member world to then go into a, a new part of the cricket fraternity away from the test world, away from the full member world. And again, you said you grew up 1992 world cup was a seminal moment in your life. Wanted you to get into cricket and Imran Khan and all that to go into a world of Bermuda, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, USA, Canada, all these associate countries that a lot of people may not know play cricket, or even if they do, there's not really an awful lot of respect shown to them in a lot of ways. What was that adjustment period like? And what did you know about these countries before you got into the job? And how has your how have your experiences with them changed your perception of what cricket is like beyond the test world? So very much it's as if, and I shouldn't make this comparison, it's as if you've been in a Gucci shop and been looking at Gucci and Louis Vuitton more or less all your life, watching that level of cricket. And then you go into, and don't quote me on this, Peter, Primark. And you're like, okay, but there's some just really genuine, good pieces to buy in Primark, okay? You can get some good brands in Primark. Exactly. Hey, hey. For prag- pragmatic purposes, functionality, that's what I go for when I pick up my clothes, not, not what, hey, look at me, I'm wearing a Peppa Pig, Daddy Pig shirt. I'm not, um, I'm not wearing the Gucci anytime it's soon, Farrah. <laughs> so I was coming to your Daddy Pig t-shirt, I was just going to use that. So you, you work with, and, and the analogy I'm showing, and the reason I say this, because you go from the top of what cricket is, your full member, your World Cup participants, and then you go to your grassroots, where everyone where people can afford the prices, people can go in and pick something genuine and there's some genuine good pieces. Anyway, put that shelf, maybe it's not a great analogy. However, going to Bermuda, going to Canada, going to Brazil, USA, I would go as far as saying I absolutely love from the heart, the passion these volunteers and my members do each day to grow the game. And looking at it, Every day I would choose the associate members to work with. Every day, every day. Full members, yes, because they've accomplished. But the beauty of trying to help a member to get to that status and to that level of what I've always been at, watching, understood, and not knowing, and answering to your question, not knowing what the associate world was. What, it, what are they trying to do? Did they know cricket? I had a lot of my own questions. But what I did find out and what I love mostly about about this job is going into countries where they are just growing the game. And I'll use this memory of mine is in Belize. And I'm two years ago before COVID, I was in Belize. And again, very small, growing, very lower on the scorecard, around about 30, 40,000 on scorecard funding and really trying to grow the game in a village type setup. And I walk through and there's this little corner shop and they gave me a nice fresh bottle of full fat Coke. I haven't had full fat Coke in a while. And it's warm, it's, it's just humid. And I'm stood there and I thought, and it was just one of those moments where I couldn't, I am so glad and I'm so thankful and blessed that I am in Belize watching 
this standard cricket game where they are all trying to grow the game. And we're in some fields and it somewhat reminded me a little bit of Pakistan, just the whole uh, third world, very rural, but nothing gave me more joy than to talk to those people and understand what they were trying to do to grow the game. And it's moments like those, Peter, that make me think that I would work for the associate members for as long as I can and help them grow the game because there's true gems out there trying to grow the game, but just merely to grow cricket and enjoy it, opposed to be in the World Cup or seeing themselves on TV. It's just the love for it. And that's very refreshing as well. Very refreshing in this modern world of ours. I'm, I'm almost getting a, a tear. Um, the emotion in that interview there. <laughs> It is it's, it's wonderful, but that's why I'm sure you you travel with us and you see some of the tournaments. You just meet some really wholesome people. Salt of the earth. Salt yeah, of the earth all the way. Salt of the earth. Absolutely. And there's no bigger joy, I think, especially if that's what you're inclined in. And that's the way I, you know, the way I am. It's got to be heartfelt. And some people around the associate world, they work exceptionally hard. And, part, and being part of their journey, I mean, I'm irrelevant to them, as I sometimes think, because they're in their country, they're in their own conditions growing the game. Farah says, do this. Farah says, can we have this? This is your budget. Farah says, let's do your strategy. What are you looking at? But when they're down on, their, on the ground doing the day-to-day, the accolade goes to those people. I'm here to support them. And yeah. One more question, then we'll get to the favorite 11. <laughs> so as, as the head administrator in the Americas, leading all these associate countries and being the head administrator who's also female, who's been a female trailblazer in, in other walks of life prior to becoming a part of the ICC. Women's cricket is probably the one area in the Americas specifically that has always been overlooked, not really supported very well. The USA national team program has only existed since 2009. And even in the 12 years, there's not really been much progress. And that is emblematic in a lot of countries in the Americas region. And then you have other examples where Brazil is taking an entirely different approach where they've neglected the men and said, we're going to make women a priority. And the fruits of that are being seen in the T20 World Cup qualifier in Mexico. So seeing the different approaches that countries have taken, what are the things that have stood out to you in terms of models of success that you want to see other countries model their own programs after? And what is the number one thing you would like to see countries focus on going forward that you think maybe hasn't been given enough attention in order to forward not just cricket overall but women's cricket specifically it's an interesting question because each country is unique to its own conditions hence brazil and usa usa have gone the traditional way domestic teams women's grassroots coaches as well as focusing highly on men high performance actually Brazil, completely different. Understood their audience that we have expats, but we don't have any indigenous Brazilian guys who really want to take the sport seriously because there's football, there's rugby. So they turned the model on its head and worked with the women, which has been exceptional for them. As you say, the fruits of the labor are showing now. I believe what I would like to see is, for me, again, it comes from the growth of allowing these school programs to grow for both female and males but specifically for females to have that at the, as an opportunity at schools. I think when we look at cricket and it's, we, we utilize communities, we can look at high performance. Of course, we can get these segregated groups and try to bring them together. For me, it goes back to the basics. Had cricket been an option for me as a child, 
I think I would have taken cricket. I was netball, I was rounders, um, hockey. But if cricket was given to me on this school curriculum or made available to me at a younger age, then absolutely it would be something that I would have partaked in. I think that's the same with each country. I think what I've been impressed by is different models. There's not one, one size that fits all in this case, as we say. I'm more for growing cricket in their conditions unique to them, opposed to this worked in Brazil. Okay, Argentina, you do the same. Chile, you do the same. It's what works for them. And Chile, for example, we're looking at skill programs. They have a women's team because they're South American championships, but that's just a group of girls who enjoy playing cricket voluntarily. So we've gone back to the school. Argentina has programs in schools, has a women's team, and have actually been the first member in my region to do a women's cricket strategy as well. So unique to them. And that way we would have or we would have organic growth of cricket opposed to we need to as ICC fix this, ICC America should I say fix this, you need to grow the women's game. What I've done also in our region is there's a we call ourselves the America's family and we have a member checking clinic where I, especially with COVID, interact with my members on a regularly monthly basis. We we pick a topic and we work on that topic for all the members to learn from. Recently has been Julia Price from the USA women's head coach has volunteered as wanting to spearhead coaching for the women in America. So we set up a forum where other members in the region join the call. I have a young lady in Peru who's passionate about cricket development. She's done her, she's just actually Peru won an award for doing an online cricket program. She is now spearheading women's development. Sometimes I take the ICC element out of it and let people who are naturally good at what they do on the ground to be able to somewhat influence the members around them. So we, no particular model in this case, it's unique, but the growth of women's and girls, as we, as you probably be aware, we had over the, um, the West Indies World Cup, the mothers and daughters program that originated from my region with my um, uh, female colleagues in the regions, in the, mem in the member countries. We created the MAD program, which is the mothers and daughters, and so that still goes on in different countries. That still is the icebreaker to bring women and girls on. So various models, I would say, depending on the region, but definitely the, the focus is around having members be the leaders in growing the game and not ICC mandating this because there's a difference. The, the best way to help is sometimes to just stay out of the way. Let the members. Help, if you need to help, help, help those help themselves. Yes. <laughs> In all seriousness. And they do a great job. They feel valued. They feel empowered to do so. And it's also sometimes because we have ICC America's hats on and we're so we need to do this, we need to do this. Remember, I usually some, some days take a step back and say, what would I do if I was in their position? I wouldn't want ICC up my, you know, do this, do that. I would say, actually, let me do what I have to in my region, in my, mem in my country, my local area, and then assist me as and when I require it. And some of our members are very much competent to be able to do that. And that's where I like to empower them. And again, Peter, you've heard of our Future Leaders Programme. I was very much as part of the selection, looking at the applications, talking to our members, and blown away of how many women and girls globally want to be involved in ICC, whether it's administration, whether it's a player, whether it's a coach, just a variety 
um, of opportunities. And I always try to, if I can, in my region, amplify that and let the ladies take the leadership role in this because they are the leaders in the country. They just need to own it. All right, Farah. <laughs> Favorite 11 time. Okay. Other questions, various things, cricket and non-cricket. You ready to rock and roll? Absolutely. Don't judge me with my answers. <laughs> Farah, here we go. As a Manchester girl, what is your favorite thing to do in Manchester that most people would not know about Manchester? Everyone knows about the football. Watch Manchester United. Go to a game. Football game. People think I'm all cricket. They never think I'm football. Like, hey, I'm a sports lady. So you you would send them to the other Old Trafford? <laughs> yes, oops. Not Lancashire. Yeah, we just, yeah, we divert. Go around to Manchester United. Yes. A red fan always. It's all happening there in, uh, in Salford Keys and Media City on the canal there. Your favorite menu item at Akbar's? Oh, you know, I knew, do you know, I thought this may come up. Has to be my kebab sandwiches. The pita lamb kebab sandwiches have been, with mint sauce, has been my favorite. I know you're going to say biryani, but I did try the biryani. No? I am partial to the seat kebab. I'm a big fan of the seat kebab and also the chicken korma. Those are my nice. go-tos on the menu there. Yeah. Okay, maybe they've discontinued lamb kebab. Maybe it's seat kebab. But the kebab sandwich with pita and mint sauce is and fries. Peter and fries is my go-to. Oh, how I miss Akbar's. Now this cracks me up. I don't want to say anything that'll ruffle feathers here, but you go to a, a wonderful restaurant like <laughs> Akbar's and it's on the menu, they have chips on the menu. What, what is that about? Now you say you order it. I thought whenever I've been in there, the only people I've seen ordering chips off the menu at Akbar's are kids. How old are you? What, what are you doing ordering chips off the menu at Akbar's? Come on, man. <laughs> Peter, every person who knows me, who knows me well enough, knows that with my dish comes fries. One of my favorite. I'm actually known as Lord of the Fries. And now this is evidence of how long you've been living in Colorado now. You've, you've totally okay, been, you don't even call them chips anymore. You call them fries. Yeah, because if you say chips in my head, I'm thinking of crisps now. I mean, it feels weird. I'm Americanized. I don't want to say chips. It's not. Unless what's, I go what's, back Father Gorsi, what's Father Gorsi going to say when he hears this? Hear Father Gorsi doesn't know this. Let's keep this between us. Father Gorsi won't be listening to this podcast. <laughs> Your favorite country or city that you have toured, whether for cricket work or any, any other leisure? Argentina, Buenos Aires. One of my most favorite. Love the people. Love that city. I feel as if I've been there, well, I have been there a few times, but when I first arrived, it felt as if I'd been here before. And just the surroundings, beautiful architecture, mwah, love Buenos Aires, love Argentina. It's on my bucket list, mainly for the cricket facilities. A lot of people know they've got some of the most fantastic cricket facilities in the associate world. Come on, Farrah, when is Argentina going to get to host an ICC event in the Americas? Make it happen. We um, maybe Peter, we will see Billy this week, next week. Maybe we corner him. No, their seasons are December till, no, sorry, November till March. And we have tried around December to put in an event. And Mr. McDermott, who we'll meet next week, um, we'll have a talk with him. We would love to host. Argentina would be a remarkable city to host an ICC women's or men's event. It's getting closer. We've tried. Excuses, excuses, using the time <laughs> of the years, you know, come Season. on. Seasonal, sorry, but it's good enough for my member visits. 
I, I love, love Buenos Aires, yes. Your favorite cricket ground experience that you've had as a fan or again, as an agent administrator. And when I say that, I mean, favorite cricket ground experience, the match, the scenery of the venue, the quality of the food or the lunches or the teas, everything that goes into the atmosphere of a cricket experience. Where is your favorite cricket ground anywhere in the world? Well, I hope no Lancashire fans are listening to this, but it has to be the, the iconic Lords, the home of cricket. Now, the way you set that up, I thought you were going to go with Headingley for a minute there. Oh, <laughs> no, close for the atmosphere, for the Pakistani fans, but no, Lords has to be, has to be Peter. The moment you, um, I actually went with a dear friend of mine to the, oh, the room, what's it called? Sorry, my mind's gone blank. Long room. Uh, the long room, yes. And I had jeans on with bright yellow high heels, white shirt, crisp white shirt. And I think two hours or probably an hour and a half into it, some gentleman tapped me on the shoulder. He said, how did you get in with jeans? I thought he was going to ask me, how did I get in? Because I was a woman. But he said, how did you get in with jeans? And I said, actually, designer jeans, thank you. So um, needless to say, <laughs> my wonderful evening, we were on the terrace watching cricket the atmosphere it was a summer's evening atmosphere and I for me that was just iconic I love the atmosphere I love not too much on the food that's all right yeah it's fine but the actual um, ambiance of being at Lord just can't beat it now you tell the story about the jeans getting into the long room with jeans on now I know where to draw the line because when I was there covering the Nepal and Netherlands MCC tri-series a couple years ago the t20 matches I showed up looking like me wearing a Hawaiian shirt and board shorts and uh, no way were they letting me in when I walked up to the entrance. Really? <laughs> you, I, I, I showed my media badge. I said, no, no, I'm, I'm supposed to take photos of, of Paris Kodka and, and the Dutch player Peter Seeler. Like, can't you let me in? I got I to gotta do my work. The steward looked at me and said, not yeah. looking like that, you're not. <laughs> and for the, for the listeners, Peter, I'm going to say it's like New York meets Hawaii sometimes with you. <laughs> I sometimes see you, I'm like, I love it. You must just go in your wardrobe and think, hey, this is what I'm wearing, everyone. So, yes, that's how I describe it. I think when I last saw you in Florida, that's what I thought. New York meets Hawaii right there. Again, I love I, it. Going back to your Gucci primary, I like to feel comfortable when I'm at the ground. The Hawaiian shirts, the porch, they made me feel comfortable. I don't, if I'm out there in 90 degree heat, I want yes. to feel comfortable. I'm not going to go wearing a shirt and tie. That's one thing, Peter, you're all about comfort. And do you know what? As I get older, I share the same sentiment. It's all about comfort. No more heels. Actually, one thing about Colorado, less of the heels, more of the um, flat pumps, shoes or trainers. Yeah. Well, if you're going to be doing those 14ers, then yeah, I, I, I would hope so. And also, if you do walk around in um, a pencil skirt and high heels, people here look at you as if you New York met Colorado and say, huh, okay. Let's go get, let's get ready again, Farah. Go back in. Your favorite cricketer of all time? As a youngster, Inzamar Mulhak. Absolutely. I actually had the opportunity to be in the vicinity where Inzamar was, and I felt really nervous. He's got the beard, he's looking very religious, and here comes Farah trotting along. Really just wanted to talk to him about his exceptional talent at the 92 World Cup. I couldn't mutter a few words. I just thought, no, as they say, keep your heroes at arm's length or something. I did that. So in the marble hack, all, yeah, all the way. 
your favorite non-cricket athlete of all time? I would say previously it would have been Serena Williams on my tennis. However, 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 Tom Brady, because I've been watching, don't judge me, I've been watching NFL. And so I've become a big football fan and learning about NFL under the rules. And he is someone with an average ability who has been exceptional over the years and has grown and inspirational. So, yeah, Tom Brady, I'd say. And I have his book as well. Your favorite place to eat out on tour. So away from Manchester, away from Carter, when you're, when you're going out to different countries, is there a chain or a specific restaurant in one specific city that's your go-to place that when you get there, you got to go? There is in Buenos Aires in Argentina, has my favorite, okay, for you, chips. And it's across the hotel that I always book and the little cute little restaurants opposite. That's probably the one place that I religiously go to that restaurant and nowhere, nowhere else. Does it have a name? Good question. Um, we'd have to ask Billy when we're in, Ar- when we're in Mexico. I, it does have a name, but I can't remember. I just remember you're the keep, You're keeping it to yourself. It's your secret. You don't want the crowd starting to take over your, your gym. Yes, that, that's mine. But that's the only one that I do actually go to when I, when I travel. The rest are just, yeah, Argentina, Buenos Aires, yeah. Are you a Coke? Now, now, be careful here. This is almost an, an ICC sponsorship uh, infringement question here. You, you, I don't want you to lose your job. Are you a Coke or a Pepsi person? Neither. Ah, ah. I d- no, I don't. I've seen the results of what they do to your teeth. Not really a Pepsi or a Coke person. Gatorade fan. More of a Gatorade fan. Energy drinks. I told a story in one of my previous episodes where I almost got in big trouble in Dubai at the World Cup qualifier in 2019 because I take I take lemon lime Gatorade with me everywhere I go on the road and Gatorade is not a Coke product and so I had Gatorade sitting on me on, on my table when I was covering match and one of the ICC workers came scaring in telling me get the labels off tear the labels off put it away because you're gonna cost us our Coca-Cola sponsorship what are you doing? <laughs> I'm happy to hear. I have a friend now uh, who's a, a fellow Gatorade, a friend of Gatorade. They, Gatorade, I can do absolutely. Coke and Pepsi, not so much. Let me ask you this question quickly: If you were to wear a blindfold and drink, would you be able to recognize Pepsi from Coke? Hundred percent. Distinct. You can't beat the real thing, Farah. Don't ever forget that. All right. Your favorite pizza topping? Um, jalapenos. Your favorite movie of all time? You've got mail. Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan. Interesting. All right. Last but not least, your favorite show to binge watch, whether it's on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Paramount Plus, your streaming service du jour, DVD box set. What's your go-to? When you're stuck in Buenos Aires and you can't get to that restaurant and it's closed, how do you pass the time by watching what show? <laughs> The one that I'm watching at the moment, and it has amples of seasons, is the Gilmore Girls. Wow. Very love it. Absolutely love the coziness, the mother and daughter, because I have a daughter. Um, I can relate to it a lot. So the Gilmore Girls um, and Bosch from Amazon has been, oh, I think I'll start that again towards the end of this year and go through the season. So LAPD and then something mother and daughter. 
it's because my daughter just shares it as well. So something that we watch together. So I love that as well. Farah Gorsi's favorite 11. Farah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'll give you the final word. Anything you want to say that you haven't already said about yourself or about managing cricket in the Americas that you want people to know that they might not already know about you? Absolutely. Go and play cricket. It is one of the most fun loving sports and bringing your family together in a community i will always whether you do it professionally or whether you do it for fun i would go for the fun route every day of the week um it is a wonderful sport as people think it's complex it's not um and appreciate your volunteers in sport whichever sport you are because they do a fabulous job and they work extremely hard so yeah volunteers in sport and the sport itself cricket that will be my parting words, Peter. And thank you for having me as well on the show. Um, I've enjoyed this interview. My heart be still. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad. Hi, thanks again to Farah Gorsi for taking the time to come on the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. She's a very busy person, again, leading the entire region as the head administrator of the ICC Americas. There's five regional coordinators around the world in the Americas, Africa, East Asia, Pacific, Europe, and mainland Asia. So she has a very, very important role in the development of cricket in the associate world. And we saw some of the fruits of that labor in Mexico during the women's qualifier. And we'll be sure to see more of that in Antigua coming up for the men's qualifier that will be in the second week of November. I want to remind everybody, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the podcast on Patreon. There's all sorts of ways you can help contribute to the podcast to make sure it is continued to be produced on a regular basis. And I appreciate everybody who has signed up to be a Patreon already. I also want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to get the latest episodes of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket by subscribing on YouTube to get the newest episodes in video format or on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, and many other podcasting outlets to get it in audio form. That's it for this edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. I'm Peter Delpen, reminding everybody, God bless America, and God bless American cricket. Cricket.